On the show today, we're going to be looking mostly at Mike Todd's Transformation Church and the Easter production they put on, as well as contrasting it to another Easter service we watch. Also, there was another mass shooting, and we need to talk about that, and we'll end with a discussion about His Holiness. We won't have time for our discussion on uh, knowing sin, and we'll have to just push that back. So we have a lot to discuss, so let's get to it. Welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer, and we are so grateful that you're here with us. This is my beautiful wife, Nikki. Hello. And, you know, we're going to do what we try to do every week here. So don't let the name fool you. We are quite Christian, quite religious, we like to think. um, But the world, and especially our country, is not. It's become a very secular place. So what we like to do here on Saturdays is just try to make sense of the world around us, the news around us, especially as it pertains to Christians, um, like we have this week looking at Easter services. Um, So we do have some good stories to get to. But before we get to any of it, dear, is there anything you would like to say? Any prayer requests that you may have? I just praise God that he's um, given me work to do. I just found a couple nice families uh, to clean for. Um, One of them is a nice Christian family. So I went over there to look at their house and give them a quote. And then I didn't realize an hour and a half goes by just talking. And it was just kind of nice to... um, just to talk with another believer, you know, being new here, and we haven't really found a, a church to uh, go to yet. So it was just kind of like, just nice to get to talk with another another mom. And yeah, so it's just been kind of, you know, lonely, <laughs> not being um, in a church yet, or really, you know, making friends. I know I brought that up last time. I know the kids need friends, but I need friends too. <laughs> yeah, so that's been a blessing. You know, just the Lord's taking care of us. We don't necessarily need for much, um, but it does help with extracurriculars, you know, and it gets Nikki out of the house once or twice a week, which is always a blessing when you homeschool it's a four kids. to get me out of the house. Well, for you, right? <laughs> we kidding. homeschool four kids and that can be a, a bit much. So it's nice to have a break. And, um, yeah. and then also just consider praying. We're still hunting for a church. We weren't able to actually get out and check out churches this previous weekend because we were out of town. So um, we're going to be checking out more churches, hoping to find the one, if you want to call it that, (laughs) or just decide to go somewhere because it's a church and they're Christians and they're preaching the word. So maybe we just need to be less picky, I suppose. Either way, pray for us. We'd appreciate it. So now before we dive into the news, let's get our plugs out of the way here. You guys know that we love uh, Cardinal Contingency Solutions, and we encourage you to reach out to them, see what they have to offer for you. You know, uh, we're talking about another mass shooting going on, and mass shootings seem to be, you know, kind of all over the place today. And, you know, is your office prepared for a mass shooting? Is your church prepared for events like this? because they're increasing. As wickedness increases in the world, why would we expect that violence isn't going to increase right along with it? So you don't have to go into these things blind. 
you don't have to be unprepared. Uh, you can reach out to Cardinal. They're the best in the world, and they can make sure that you're, you know, prepared in case the unthinkable happens. So we'll have links to Cardinal in the show notes. Go check those out. Give them a call. Send them an email. See what they can do for you. I do not think you'd be disappointed. And of course, we are proud members of the Christian Podcast community, and we would love it if you guys would head over to Chris, uh, christianpodcastcommunity.org. You can go to the show link and find the 55 or so great Christian podcasts that are on there. We, of course, are on there and very honored to be so. And I think, uh, you know, they probably have something for everybody there. And even if you don't want to, you know, go to christianpodcastcommunity.org, just go to your favorite podcasting platform, Spotify, Apple, whatever it happens to be, and search for it. You can find them there, subscribe to them, and you get 60 podcasts in one feed. It's really a convenient way to listen to, you know, not getting NPR and Joe Rogan shoved down your throat by Spotify every time you log in. So <laughs> you get some good Christian podcasts going on. But you guys know what time it is if you've been here. It's time to cue the music. Although this is a delayed cue, because our initial story on Mike Todd and Easter services did not deserve the music. So this music is being reserved for later in the episode. But we're going to cue it anyways, because it needs to be cued. So it was the best of Easter services. It was the worst of Easter services. It was an age of sound doctrine. It was an age of great entertainment. So, uh, sorry, I came up with the title for this and I thought, you know, I do have to grab, I guess, a quote from A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, I guess we've never snuck in Charles Dickens here on this podcast, so it's the first time today. <laughs> but we do want to just look at Mike Todd and Transformation Church's Easter service. Uh, I'm sure by now many of you have probably seen or heard videos and reactions um, to what they put on at Transformation uh, Transformation Church, and we just want to give our take. And I think we should give our take because I think most of what you've probably seen and most of what you've probably heard, if it's anything like what we saw and heard, was over the top and I would say largely taken out of context, at least from what I saw. And that isn't to say that we were fans of what Transformation Church put on, but over-exaggerating the events isn't what's needed either. You know, I think a lot of it's just, it's clickbaity, um, you know, to throw that stuff out there like it's, you know, the Easter service from hell and you're like, settle down, right? So we watched the entire service and we just want to share with you what we saw, things that stood out to us on the service. And then sticking with the theme of a tale of two Easter services, we do want to juxtapose Transformation Church's service with what took place at maybe the most polar opposite church in America, and just see sort of what lessons we can take from this tale of two Easter's. So getting into Mike Todd and Transformation Church, um, I mean, I have to say, first off, the production was amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was very entertaining. And not just even entertaining. I mean, it was you could easily have believed that people would have paid money and good money to go and see a production of that level. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely top notch. 
Uh, you know, the acting, the singing, the lights, the dancing, even the video production that was part of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything about the production was astounding. So yeah. whoever directed it, you know, the actors that were involved, I would be surprised if they weren't going to be getting calls in the next week for maybe some real acting work. Uh, I hope they don't leave the church to go to Hollywood and yeah. just completely sink their soul into the abyss. But I would be stunned if they weren't getting calls. So, but that made me think of, you know, also because it was such a production that they put on. And it made me think of the Easter service that we went to and just how painfully disappointing ours was. You know, we went back home or to a previous city that we lived in where family still lives. And we decided we would go back to the Baptist church that we went to um, briefly. I think we've talked about this church before. You know, we went there. We liked the pastor's teaching, you know, but they kind of closed down twice during COVID and that just rubbed us the wrong way. So we left, but we decided, you know what, for a one time, we'll just go back there and get a good uh, Easter service. And, you know, it's just your typical Baptist church. You know, it's a bunch of largely older folks. Um, you know, they do their potlucks. And when it comes to like music, it's usually a piano, maybe a guitar and like a singer or two. Very, I mean, it's what you would expect from a small town Baptist church. Yeah, they don't have like the flashy lights. Um, you know, the stage isn't like an entertainment. No, um, none of that stuff. This Easter, however, <laughs> they tried to put on a spectacle, I would say. Uh, you know, they had yeah. like sparkler machines in the front row. They had like a light show that looked like they kind of just threw it together. I mean, I mean it, is... it was funny because when we first sat down, we sat like the very last row and there was this sweet old lady sitting on the end by herself and Spencer was next to her and went like it began and it was like the fog machine going. And that's obviously not something they normally do. Because she asks us, she's like, why does it look blurry? Like, is there smoke or something? Yeah. And like, she was kind of laughing about it, too. Like, what? Why She are was they... probably a regular and was like, yeah. why can't I see anything here? And, you know, like, as great as Transformation's production was, this church's was equally awful. Um, and it was a shame. You know, the effects were lame. They were disappointing. But it was still, like, way over the top for what this church is. It's a typical Baptist church, right? Um, way over the top from who they've been and really who they cater to. Like I said, old folks, there are really even younger families with young kids. It's kind of, there's not a lot of middle ground in that church. I just wonder if they were kind of putting on the lights and, you know, the wow factor, because maybe they're trying to get um, younger people in, but that's, that's sad. That's why yeah. it was like disappointing. Like, no, I'm certain that's why they did it. And that's what made me sad about it. Like this entertainment church culture is just infecting everything. Like, hey, you know, it's Easter, right? I mean, I guess we have to make some sort of light show. And like, mm-hmm. no, man, you didn't need to do any of that. Mm-hmm. So it was sad, disappointing. And then, you know, coming back and watching Transformation Church and you're like, holy smokes, ours was terrible. Um, and it shouldn't be right. I mean, Easter should be one of the greatest services you go to an entire year. Uh, and ours was just terribly disappointing. So, well, it was disappointing because it was the extra, like, we're not there for that. We're there to hear the word. 
Right. And like, I'm not disappointed I would say, that it wasn't done well. No, not you know, like the me either. I was I disappointed care. that they were trying to go that yeah, route because yeah. I don't think we were different. I mean, the people in that church, we went to that church. They didn't go there for the light shows. There's a church literally a quarter of a mile down the road that does the light shows. If they wanted that, they would have gone to the other yeah. church. So it just kind of made me sad. And then watching Transformation was just like, wow, that was terrible. Um, all right. So that's just the general production, right? Top notch, absolutely amazing as far as how it was done. But what about the merits of the production? And um, we had a lot of issues here as far as the merits of the production. And the first thing I will say about, you know, the issues I took with it was the majority or really the entirety of the play was sort of focused on Eve. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. there was no reference to Adam at all, really throughout the entirety of it. I mean, I think Mike Todd might have referenced Adam once when he was talking, yeah. but in the production, it was solely focused on Eve. And that's weird to me. Because it's really almost entirely backwards from what we see in scripture. You know, in scripture, Eve is tempted by the serpent. Mm -hmm. But in, right away after that, in Genesis 3, 9, when God comes looking, it's Adam that he calls for. But in the production, everything is focused on Eve. And, you know, it just made me wonder. I mean, obviously, it was done on purpose. They wrote this, you know, they wrote the play. They produced it, everything was done. So they knew what they were doing. And mm -hmm. um, it just makes me wonder, like, like they, they have such talent. They could have done it the way the Bible says. No, you know? of course they like, could have. I, I don't know why they made it like, because Eve was like a princess or something. She's yeah, she was a princess, but there was no prince with her because Adam wasn't involved. And they had wonderful male actors in the production. So they, it wasn't like they were hurting for male actors. Mm -hmm. They had them and they were good. Um, but I do believe it was for a purpose. And, you know, again, we're just speculating here because we aren't part of Transformation Church, but, you know, we live in the female empowerment era. Yeah. And, you know, so was this just Transformation Church sort of leaning into that? Because the play, you know, focused on really the women and just left the men out of it, which was yeah. very strange. And I thought it was yeah. a very unbiblical way of telling the story of the fall. I think it was done on purpose. And I think it was done incorrectly. You know, I don't know how you tell the story of the fall and leave Adam out of it. Yeah, it's kind of weird to like have this story and then mix, try to explain the gospel in light of this. Like they don't, they didn't fit. No. And so right. just, I guess, highlighting the play sort of covered everything starting from the fall until Christ's resurrection, you know, it sort of kind of covered that yeah. broad swath of time there. So, um, but yeah, I mean, to leave Adam out and just very bizarre to me, although I did think with them leaning into the women and sort of I guess if you wanted to take a positive out of the female-dominated casting that Transformation Church had in there, Satan was portrayed as a woman in this play as well, which I do think that seems to fit since feminism is playing such a large part in destroying our culture today. So that part seemed to fit a little bit, though still you could say, why was Satan played by a woman? 
But again, I had less issue with that than leaving Adam out of the thing entirely, which was bizarre. So part I was going to ask you about, um, there was that lady that sang and she had like that crown or tiara or something on her head. Yeah. She's supposed to be the mother of Jesus. Because in her song, she says like, my son. Yeah, I do believe she was supposed to be portraying Mary because I felt like she maybe even said something in part of the song where she like, you know, told Jesus or something like that to go and do or whatever. It was like a quick bit of the song, but I just remember thinking like, did they just write in there that like Mary queen of heaven sort of stuff? Like she's commanding Jesus to do something. And I didn't stop and go back and rewind it. But if you watch this, there's a part maybe about 30 to 40 minutes into the play or something where she's singing and see if you catch it. Uh, Let me know down in the comments if in fact, they're trying to pitch Mary as sort of the queen of heaven type thing. Um, Yeah, that's what I saw, especially with the kind of the crown thing on her head. So yeah, that's what I was, I thought they were going for there. So, um, but in the Easter production there, they really, I think throughout the entirety of it, they sort of portrayed God as sort of responding to Eve's sin. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, it wasn't them portraying Adam and Eve sinning, but just Eve because Adam was left out of it entirely. And they portrayed God as really sort of having to figure out a plan Mm -hmm. after the sin had happened. So I want to play this little um, clip from here. So you guys can kind of hear and see what I'm talking about um, if you're on the podcast or watching on YouTube, whatever. Um, But that, again, if you're talking about the biblical merits of it, took some umbrage with. The king longed for a day when this would change, so he devised a plan. If the king's only son, the great knight, married the princess of the people, then the royalty could once again be united with the people of the kingdom. Yeah, so, you know, that's that idea, like, um, the king devised a plan as though he wasn't aware of Eve's sin, and after she sinned, he had to come up with some plan B. So this is sort of that you know, theology of like the failed plan A, God had to come up with a plan B, which mm-hmm. is not biblical. Um, yeah. This may be what the world thinks that scripture teaches, that after man fell, God had to clean up the mess. But this is not what scripture teaches. Second um, Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Yeah, I don't like how they portrayed God as like worrying and, you know, trying to figure out what to do. Like that makes him be like not God, like that things happen that he's unaware of and then he's just trying to find a way. That makes him too like human like us. Right. And it doesn't, I don't know if they were just trying to come up with a way to make the play compelling. Yeah. Or if this speaks to a deeper problem with transformation, transformation church's theology, because if this is what they really believe that God is sort of watching the world play out and then figuring things out as they go, 
Um, that's not the God that the Bible describes. If he's all knowing, he's all knowing. If first Timothy or second Timothy, I'm sorry, chapter one is correct. And Christ was the plan before the ages began, mm-hmm. before Adam and Eve sinned, you know, there wasn't a plan A, you know, that somehow Adam and Eve thwarted to even consider that man could thwart God's plan right. again, diminishes God from an all powerful omniscient being to just behold into the whims of humans, which the mm-hmm. Bible doesn't teach, right? So Adam and Eve thwarted it, or really in this play, Eve thwarted it. And then God has to fix it. You know, that's not accurate. This was the plan. Yeah, you may not like it. Written this the was the plan. Um, before it, the world. Yeah, yeah. Before time began. And then also, I don't know if you heard it in there. He says that if the, the king's son married the princess, and I don't know where that comes from. Um, I don't know what the purpose of that, because the princess is portrayed as Eve throughout. So unless yeah. she's sort of... She represents the church. Yeah, the like... bride as a whole, but it's it's weird, I think, and I don't know that that's made very evident. It more sounds like Jesus has to go and marry Eve. Very strange way to... I think to... it's causing confusion with the gospel. I think so. Yeah, it's it, it just doesn't fit. Like I said, it's I think it's... I don't know. It's confusing. Yeah, I think it was confusing. Um, like I said, you know, that part, marrying the princess, the queen of heaven sort of thing with m- the girl who played Mary, like very bizarre. Marrying this girl that represents the church, that doesn't speak of dying, um, you know, being a sacrifice for the sins. That's just overlooking it and to say, just marry. It's like, we need to talk about the sacrifice, you know, the great exchange. (laughs) Yeah. So very weird there. But the next point that I think I had issue with, uh, there was a, a point where Eve was singing about being separated from God because of her sin. It was a beautiful song, very moving song. You know, she's singing about this wall that's been placed between her and God, you know, this this wall that really this sin that she had committed put between, you know, her and God, or you could say us and God. And I mean, you could really imagine, you know, as bad as it is for us today, being fallen and separated from God by our sin. I mean, imagine having perfect communion with God and then losing it, right? Like that's hard to imagine. It's hard for our brains to really wrap around such an idea. But there's a part there where she hits a note singing And I'm going to play it for you guys. But then the crowd sort of hoots and cheers. So let me see if you guys can hear this. So, you know, you can hear it. She sort of hits this high note and they all, you know, not all of them, but they cheer and hoot. And this just really struck me as odd um, because really the way this song was sung and the tone that it was sung in, it should have been a moment of like sadness, you know, maybe reflection on our own sins that separate us from God. 
you know, but you get the sense that instead it was really just kind of like purely enjoyment from the crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, some may have been sad because it wasn't like a huge contingent of the crowd that hoots and cheers, but it was enough where you're like, I don't know that it's like pricking the soul there, or if it's mm-hmm. just, man, this is a great play. Wow. I mean, because if you were at a normal concert and a lady or a guy or whatever hit that note, you would hoot and cheer. Mm-hmm. But you're here supposed to be reminded of this great sin that separated us from our loving creator. And yeah. the song was somber and it was beautiful and you know i know when i listened to it i was like oh man like it really hit me listening to it and then you hear this hoot and cheer and you're like these people i don't think are there for the right yeah when you're not getting it when you're caught up in like sorrow you know when you're like about to cry and you can't talk um that's where people should have been where they couldn't speak let alone like holler out you know and at this lady so obviously those who are hollering and clapping their hands at her they weren't having that that moment of like sadness where they should have been sad because you know what i mean when you're sad you kind of like you can't talk right that's what struck me and again it wasn't everybody there you don't know who's there but just yeah in that moment to sort of hoot and cheer instead of like oh man that's me. I'm separated. You know, I sin and I've separated myself or, you know, whatever it happens to be. It just, it was an odd moment, I think. Mm-hmm. And there were many odd moments in this production, but that one kind of left you with the sense that like, it's not really getting in deep with them. They're just sort of enjoying the show. And I think that's a shame. Yeah. I think, I mean, the, the, I don't know if you're going to play that clip where the pastor comes out in the middle and he, he does say, um, you know, think about yourself, like, like he wants you to be inward focused. Like he really, you can tell he really desires people to, um, be focused on the message and put themselves in, in that place. You know, they're separated from God. So I can see like his passion, his desire for people to really be saved. Um, but it's like, it's hard to because you're watching it and it is entertaining and it's distracting from the message. Like, it's great. Like, there's a time for this awesome entertainment, but there's a time for, like, the gospel and the somber message. Like, to mix them together, um, it doesn't make the gospel more able to be received. I think it actually covers the beauty of the gospel when you're appealing to the flesh with it. Yeah. And I, you know, we'll discuss Mike Todd and what he had to say here in a little bit, but uh, yeah, I mean, you do get that sense from Mike Todd, whether you agree with this theology and, you know, we certainly have our issues, but you do get a yeah. sense that he loves his people, you know, yeah, he, he does has a want desire, to, but... but he doesn't fully understand theology. Like his, I think his heart is there, but I think he's got a lot to learn. Yeah, and I would say that was that's the same with a lot of these people that, especially even on this podcast that we sort of, you know, complain against. I mean, I I wouldn't even say, you know, Rick Warren, I'm sure, loves his people, you know, even though we think he's gone astray uh, with some of his theology. And But you do get that sense from Mike Todd. So, And this isn't some, meant to be a Mike Todd bashing. That's not what we're trying to do here. Or even really a Transformation Church bashing. You know, maybe there's appropriate time for that. We just want to kind of 
make you see what we saw um, with the production and where we think they fell short, kind of. So one of the areas where most people have said that they've you know fallen short and it was the hell scene. There was, I think, two or maybe three different hell scenes in here, and much has been made about those hell scenes. And I think a lot of that was kind of clickbaity, mm-hmm. which is kind of what led us to want to discuss this. Um, but I, you know, I think a lot of it was over exaggerated because I think in the uh, course of this production, a hell scene was necessary. You know, if you're going to tell the story of the fall of man and you know, uh, sin that separates all these sorts of things. I think it's necessary to have a hell scene and, you know, Are you playing one of them. No, I wasn't going to play. Oh a gosh, I was just going to, cause like our daughter, our older daughter was watching it with me today. And, um, she was kind of like, it reminds me of some show we were talking about, like the, cause they, cause the characters on it that represent the demons are kind of like goofy. And it just kind of reminded us of like, um, what we bring up like the Lion King, like the hyenas, you know, they're evil. And like the, one of the scenes is like fire and, you know, darkness. Yeah. But they kind of acted goofy, like the hyenas in the movie, the Lion King. And, and it could have been made, something they took inspiration from. But they kind of like portrayed it. This is what I talked about with Holly. I was like, look how they're making it look like if you go to hell, it looks fun though. You're going to be around these fun, silly demons and they all just poke fun at each other. And it kind of looks like hell's not that bad because they're pretty funny. You know, their Maybe. sin is fun. I mean, it kind of just, just people, people believe that. They're like, oh, I don't care if I go to hell. I'll just have fun in my sin there. And they think they're going to have fun in their sin with everybody else. So they kind of yeah. portrayed it as not a fearful thing. Yeah, I it guess was like you fun. could say that. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. You know, especially when uh, some of the girls, you know, were kind of talking about um, their body parts. You know, it, the play was kind of depicting like, how are we going to sabotage this human race? And they were, so, uh, yeah, you could kind of say, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, maybe that's the way women are down there. Like, maybe yeah. I want to be there. Right. So I didn't get that initially when I watched it, but that does make sense that you could see it that way. Um, but you know, they were depicting hell again at different times throughout this. Like I said, I think there's about three different hell scenes. Yeah, hell was more of the comedy scenes. Yeah, and I mean, I do think it was done for a purpose, and I do think it was necessary to sort of show what was the dark side doing? What were they trying to... Con- again, not saying I agree with the way they were doing it, but showing that side of like, hey, there is a hell that's working against us. What were they doing to work against us kind of a thing? Um, but near the end in one of their hell scenes, they were kind of predicting this sort of spiritual realm, kind of attacking Jesus on the cross. You know, this is near the end, I think kind of where Jesus is about to be resurrected. Um, and again, don't agree necessarily with the theology that they were trying to promote or push behind the production. Um, but there was a part where, uh, um, like I said, women were playing the demons. So they were kind of coming up with this plan of, and this was really what I took the biggest, well, not the biggest umbrage with, but a problem with. They were kind of talking about how are we going to sabotage them? And somebody came up with an idea and these girls said, no, 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 like here's the plan. But they specifically were talking about their bodies and like 
their butts, I think specifically kind of provocatively. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I think you could have made the point without specifically like highlighting your own body parts. And then later on in the play, a guy comes out who's pride and he's out there and his shirt was like buttoned really low. So it was open to his bare chest a little bit. And I was like, I mean, you're in church still. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, this is still a church production. I don't think you needed to present things in that manner, even if you're trying to portray hell to like point out women's body parts and then kind of show a man's bare chest and stuff in that manner. It seemed a bit much to me. It's still like, you know, for certain there were people there who that was, that was affecting them. That was tempting them. And their mind was probably going in the wrong direction because of the creativity. Right. And that's what I thought of. I was like, "Eh, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Um, Although I do think one point specifically that they got right about hell, we kind of talked about Satan being a woman already. Uh, but all the music in this entire production was, you know, sung beautifully, you know, it was just awesome, you know, start to finish, I think. But the music that they used basically every time that represented hell was hip hop music. <laughs> and I think that was spot on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they did that on purpose, but hip hop music and really hip hop culture in our society today is by and large satanic. Uh, So I thought it made sense that they would represent hell in that fashion. So I think they got that part right with the music and the choice of, you know, genre there to be hip hop and hell. Because I was like, yeah, that fits. Well, this is a whole, the purpose of it is for entertaining. So if you're choosing a style of music or something where they're they're just changing the lyrics out, um, but it's songs that they know um, that the congregation is familiar with. That's why they chose those songs and just changed the yeah, lyrics Wasn't there out. a troll song in there? I think so. I think there was like a the dance, dance, dance song. But, you know, yeah. I don't have a yeah. problem by and large with the songs that were sung, you know, but I just thought that was clever. I was like, I guess if I had to pick music for hell, it'd be hip hop. The hip hop one was weird so. about the dragon was a hustler. Yeah, I mean, again, yeah, I'm not that was weird. Specifically to the theology <laughs> there, but just the choice of music. Although, um, and this is one point I will bring up about the hell scenes, um, and even really Jesus's death and resurrection piece at the end, that I think was probably, at least in my view, you know, the most off base. Um, I guess that's hard to pick. You know, God, you know being beholden to our whims, no Adam, a lot of things off base. But the way they depicted Jesus in this, I had a lot of problems with because, you know, there was one scene that we're going to show here in a second. So if you're not watching on the video, you're just going to have to take my word for it. Uh, But Jesus was shown in like a sword fight with Satan at one point. And in that sword fight, uh, we're going to play in just a second, Jesus gets wounded uh, Satan, you know, swings a sword and wounds Jesus. And then later on the cross, as he sort of gets down, he's kind of battling with the demons and they get him down at one point. So let me see if I can show this piece with the sword fight. Come <laughs> on. 
Yeah. So if you're watching, you know, there's that part he's, you know, swings and she sort of comes under and slight slices Jesus across the stomach. And I was just like, man, this is entirely wrong. You know, like, Jesus is not fighting with Satan. It's not a battle with Satan because Satan is not a worthy adversary of Christ. Mm -hmm. In fact, Satan is not an adversary at all of Christ. Jesus, again, is the omnipotent creator of heaven and earth. You know, Satan, as we see in places like the book of Job, you know, in Job chapter one, verse six, Job chapter two, verse one, and then even in the gospels, like in Luke chapter 22, we see Satan asking God for permission to afflict men, mm-hmm. right? Satan even has to go to God for permission, yet yeah. they're showing it here that somehow there's this great battle and it's a back and forth between Satan and Jesus, which is not correct in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, like Jesus isn't struggling in a battle with Satan, like where Satan could have won. It just, there's not a moment where it really looks like Satan's going to win. Like, and they kind of portray it that way, but you, that's not the truth. Like, there's never a time. I mean, I know, you know, the the mystery hidden, you know, Satan thought he was, thought that he won. We know that, but, um, but they didn't know that, um, that it was in Jesus's death, um, that, that was his victory. So it's not like there was a struggle. He laid down his life. Yeah. And that was my problem, you know, because even at the cross, you know, with the demons, you know, they're kind of fighting Jesus and, you know, he, he's winning and stuff, but they, you know, pin him down and he breaks free. And I was like, that is not Mm -mm. what's happening. You know, even at the cross, Christ didn't die by man's hands or by Satan's hand. Christ yielded up his spirit, it says in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. So I think depicting Jesus is, you know, in this sort of battle with Satan, you know, and again, like so much of this, I get it for the theatrics, you know, what you're trying to show there, but I don't think it's accurate. And I think it paints a picture of Jesus that is less than God Almighty. Mm -hmm. And that I take a big issue with. The same thing is with, well, God's just figuring it out man, Eve messed it up. I better come up with a plan. And now you here you have like Jesus in this epic battle with Satan and it's going back and forth. It's not going back and forth. It's a one one way, complete lopsided victory. It's like there's way more focus in this production on Satan than on Jesus. There is a lot. That kind of bothers me. There is a lot of focus on Satan there. So uh, the last point here we will mention uh, is Mike Todd's specific piece in this. So um, he came out once kind of in the middle and he gave about a 10 minute, uh, you know, kind of sermon there. And then he came out at the very end. Both times he spoke for maybe 10, 15 minutes. I'm not entirely sure. It was fairly brief. And I didn't really have a a big issue with what Mike Todd had to say. Now, again, we don't really agree with his theology by and large, so we could pick that apart here. Um, but like Nikki said, you do get a sense that he has a heart for his people. He wants them to know Jesus and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, you know, but we kind of knew what to expect with the way Mike Todd was going to preach and present this message. So uh, 
it really wasn't what he had to say necessarily so much uh, that I had a problem with. But, you know, again, I don't watch a lot of Mike Todd's sermons. This is really the first kind of one that I've sat down specifically to watch. But I imagine this sort of presentation or sermon delivery is probably quite common for Mike Todd. This is probably the way he he delivers most of his sermons. But what stuck, uh, stood out to me was he had no Bible, just him walking around on the, uh, walking around on the stage. And in his entire speaking part, both sections, I heard him uh, make two specific scriptural references. He made one reference to scripture in the middle, sort of 10-minute segment, and then one at the very end. You know, so in a sense, it was Mike Todd's advice based on the Bible. Um, you know, kind of Mike Todd's advice and his understanding on the Bible on how to live rather than God's word on how we are to live. And, you know, it was a lot of Bible speak, but only two sort of specific instances pointing to or referencing God's word. Because God's word is authoritative, not Mike Todd. <laughs> no matter how well he knows the Bible, it's God's words that's authoritative, mm -hmm. not the guy necessarily telling you what he read and understands about it. So you need to show us that. That's, you know, something I would want to see. Show me the Bible. Tell me yeah. the verse so I can go and find it myself. Right. Let me see and let me hear what God's speaking to me. Yeah, I notice him and a lot of other, you know, pastors, those kinds of churches, they, they're talking to the people and kind of putting thoughts in their mind, like saying, oh, maybe you felt like you shouldn't have been here today. Maybe this, maybe this is what you're going through. Maybe this has been your life growing up. So they're very much focused on the people and they're just trying to get them um, to just trust in Jesus, that he accepts you just as you are. So this whole thing is about who you are and you've thought yourself unworthy all your life. And I don't think people are, are really looking at themselves that way. People aren't coming to church and saying, I'm unworthy. When you haven't even talked with them or shared scripture with them about who God is, and you didn't even really share with them who they are in light of God's holiness. So how could they feel unworthy when they didn't even, there's no conviction of sin yet. You're talking about this unworthiness without talking about sin. It doesn't make any sense. So, but he did speak about coming to Christ as you are, which is true, and letting Jesus clean clean you up, you know, that terminology, clean you up or remove your habits is how he worded it. Um, we really need to stop calling sins, habits, and mistakes and watering down sin. But he did call it sin in some other parts of his sermon. Um, he did make mention of sin, uh, sin nature at one point. So I'm glad that he actually said that's we have a sin nature. That was that was actually pretty good. I was surprised he said that. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad he notices we are born in sin. So I hope he can turn his his view on trans identity um, in light of that truth. Um, you know, we're all born in sin, so we need to be born again, and that includes the sin of the trans identity and lifestyle, which I think we brought up last time or the time before that they, Which he kind they of, think that there are people who are born in the wrong body. He, 
Yeah, and again, that's where you know we could be nitpicky on Mike Todd's theology because he is, I would say, soft on the transgenderism, LGBTQ identity. But again, uh, I take less issue with that today here. It's just more in the way that you're delivering the sermons. Because even if, you know, I understand that not everybody interprets the Bible the way we do. But, you know, whether you're a Baptist church or a Pentecostal, you know, uh, uh, continuationist with the spiritual gifts or cessationist, whatever it happens to be, whatever spectrum you're on, if you're going to the Bible and reading the words of God and, you know, discussing specifically God's word instead of just kind of generic Bible speak, I think I'd have less problems with it because then you would just go, man, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't interpret it that way or I don't read it that way, but, you know, hey, at least you're there. And uh, so I took issue with that. And, you know, just yeah. kind of by and large, the the play was an illustration of the Bible. It's kind of what it was trying to show you, right? Just a production of what scripture sort of tells us happens from the fall to the resurrection. And then its sermon, again, was kind of talking about the Bible, mm-hmm. but none of it or very little of it was actually the Bible. It was just a different story of salvation, but it wasn't like being saved from your sins in the production. Yeah. Just marrying and being part of the family again. (laughs) Yeah, so very bizarre. And that kind of takes us to our second Easter service and you know, the one we kind of want to juxtapose with Transformation Church. Well, let me just say one more thing about before you move on to the other one. I really liked that they played clips from The Passion of the Christ. Um, Because that was the only part when I was watching where I started crying. (laughs) Yeah, I did think about that too. I was like, well, you can't play something from The Passion of the Christ and not be moved to like, whew. Like Jesus getting, you know, whipped and his flesh being ripped out. And I know scripture says like, you couldn't even recognize who he was. I was like, even in the movie, like it's pretty bad, but you can still recognize who the person is. And I thought, oh, I hope people get that. Like, why is he suffering this way? But he is the one who laid his life down. Like, again, they didn't do that to him. He laid his life down. And I thought, gosh, if they just would have just played that movie, that would have been been better. But I'm glad they did. I'm glad. I think that's important. Just maybe a lot of people don't understand. Like Jesus wasn't just crucified. Um, yeah. No, um, I was humiliated, um, abandoned. Um, he went through everything emotionally, physically. Yeah. I was glad they included the passion piece in there. Um, cause that always moves people when they watch, you know, that bit of the passion, but, but it was sad that immediately after that, um, those clips, they got right into the entertainment, and it kind of immediately made your mind leave that where you should have been in sorrow, just weeping for what Christ did to immediately, oh, entertainment. I forgot yeah. about, what was it we were, oh, Jesus, oh, but I'm being entertained now. Yeah, that should have been just... when their altar call came, <laughs> right after the passion. Yeah. Uh, call them to the altar, so. It is weird. Uh, but no, so for our, uh, you know, polar opposite of Transformation Church, you know, like we mentioned earlier, we wanted to highlight Grace Community Church, which we mentioned John MacArthur and Grace Community on here a lot, Um, but this isn't necessarily about John MacArthur specifically. 
Um, this could be any number of probably thousands of pastors that preached on Easter Sunday. It could be your pastor. Um, it's going to be in our sermon recommendation and the way that pastor, um, I think, preached his sermon. Uh, but And it's not even going to be about necessarily John MacArthur's theology or anything of that sort. Uh, it's just going to be focused more on his sermon uh, because MacArthur's sermon was what they always are. It's an old man standing behind a pulpit and preaching from a Bible. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier with Mike Todd and his two sermon pieces, and they were both about the same length. I think MacArthur's was 30, maybe 35, maybe 30 minutes like or something. Minutes. Yeah, 28, 30 minutes, about the same length as Mike Todd's. And Mike Todd's had two individual scripture references. And in the same length of time, uh, MacArthur's sermon had 27 references that, you know, to scripture. So on an Easter service, when you know that that is a time when you have the ears of probably the most non-churched people of the year that are going to be in your vicinity, and, you know, I think you lean into what you believe is going to reach them or transform them. You know, mm -hmm. so at Transformation Church, we see entertainment being the focus. And in the other church, at Grace Community Church, we see God being the focus. You know, and so among all the many issues, you know, that we necessarily had with Transformation's Easter service, kind of my biggest problem was that entertainment is what they brought to church or to those attending the church. And they really brought it in place of God's word. And I think that that's, uh, yeah, it just, he did. I don't get, I mean, I get it. That's sort of what the culture wants. I mean, we talked about the, the lame Baptist service we went to and how they're even leaning into that. But I think that's a flaw in the American gospel, because I think even at the end of this transformation service, when Mike Todd kind of gets done with this second sermon piece and he does this sort of altar call, he says something, he's like, you know that emotion that you're feeling right now? He's like, that's the Holy Spirit. And I was like, is it? Because he just spent an hour with this Hollywood-level production working these people into a frenzy. I'm not sure if it's the Holy Spirit, especially because, you know, we didn't really hear a gospel message. Right. We didn't really hear the Word of God. And, you know, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So faith doesn't come through entertainment or emotion. Mm -hmm. It comes through the word of God. And he did share a different kind of, he was preaching the prosperity gospel because he said something to the effect of once your life is uh, spiritually, he said spiritually something, spiritually right with God or something like that, then the rest of your life will come together. So well, no mention of sin. I mean, he. it was just... He does Come have to a God prosperity to get your theology. Life cleaned up. God will help clear up all your problems in life. Was pretty much like that's not people's greatest need. <laughs> no, and he does have a bit of a prosperity theology. You know that's been highlighted. I think in other places at other times. But you know we've referenced here just in the last few weeks. You know talking about revival uh, in places in Scripture like Nehemiah eight, and we talked about Second Kings chapter twenty two. It's the reading of God's word that brought about the revival mm -hmm. among the people of God. Even 
you know, Jesus himself, you know, he went to the temple and he opened the scrolls in Luke 4. <laughs> Christ went and opened the scrolls that his own spirit inspired to be written, right? So as beautiful and really amazing as that ransom production from Transformation Church was, I just can't help but feel that it missed the mark because I think people went away entertained, but mm-hmm. they went away empty. Well, because he ended large. the service when like the production was done, he comes out and he's like, Something like, all right, don't hurry off to brunch, because I guess they had food there after the service. Like, just the fact that you had to, like, you know your congregation, they're in a hurry, the entertainment's done. Don't hurry off to brunch. I'm going to share the gospel real quick. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, that was just kind of, you know, that's, I don't know. I mean, you know your, you know your church, you know your people. Uh, so, you know, I just wonder for the first time attendees that went to the church, like what message did they take away? If you were getting people that you're trying to share the gospel with for the first time, what did they hear? What are they taking away from that service? Mm -hmm. And I think this is so much of what church in America has become. You know, I have no doubt that if they did an altar, well, they did do an altar call at Transformation Church, probably Many people, you know, went to the altar or they raised their hands or whatever. They said their sinner's prayer. But I think Transformation Church sort of encapsulates how we end up in a place in this nation where we have 65% of people that say they're Christian, yet 6% of them have a biblical worldview. You know, how do we have a nation full of people that claim to know God or they know that God loves them? And he wants them to help them and help them overcome whatever burdens they have. But they don't understand Matthew chapter 28, 20, right? They know going to all the nations, but what about observing all that Christ has commanded us? You know, hey, God loves me and he's there for me. Sure, of course he is. What about you doing all that God's commanded you to do? Did you hear that message? You know, did you hear about your sin nature that separates you from God. Did you even necessarily, you know, it just, you hear like repent, but they say repent just meaning turn toward God. They're not talking about what you're turning away from when they, they don't fully explain what repent means. It's turning away from something, but what are you going towards? Yeah. You're going towards God so you can clean up your life, but you're going to drag all your other things along with you as you turn toward God. No. You can't serve two masters. Well, I think it's a huge, you know, heaping of that Christ is Savior, but not Christ is Lord. Right. And, you know, the Lord piece is, I can only imagine, largely, you know, left out of so many of these places. And you didn't hear a lot about that. And you just didn't really get what I would consider, you know, a full-on gospel message Mm -hmm. because you were hearing sort of Mike Todd's advice on what the Bible says and what he thinks you should do according to the Bible instead of opening up God's word and letting you hear what God says that you're, you know, called to and and these sorts of things. And um, again, this isn't necessarily as much about Transformation Church or Mike Todd or even Grace Community and John MacArthur. This is more about two views of church and worship in America. You know, as entertainment has really replaced sort of doctrine and um, teaching in the church, you know, we see what's become of this nation. You know, the Lord said it in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And you can't help but 
see that, yeah, this is kind of how we get there. We honor him with our lips. Oh, I love God. He loves me. He's for me, Mm -hmm. you know, and all these sorts of things. But like, is your heart there? Are you willing to suffer and sacrifice? Are you happy to be a slave for Christ? Mm -hmm. Um, Or is he there to supercharge your life? And Mm -hmm. a lot of Mike Todd's sermons, I think, and really this play and the sermons that were presented on Easter was a supercharging of your life. And, you know, all worship to God is not proper worship. You know, we don't get right. to decide what is or what isn't proper worship. God does. And likewise, we don't get to decide what transforms lives and sets sinners free. God does, and he already has. It's the preaching of his word, uh, because his word says it's the preaching of his word. You know, it's the sharing of his gospel. So all the entertainment in the world, all the emotional stirring in the world, it won't save a sinner's soul from hell. Hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what saves sinners' souls. And I think these two churches, again, whether they're right or wrong, you see the approach, I think. In, in one, they point to God. They point to his word almost entirely. The other one, it's entertainment and emotion. And I think that's a big problem. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 14, I have here, it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You know, so for all that the ransom production was, and it was awesome, I think they fell short of what Paul was exhorting teachers to do. Um, and I think that's largely why I had the biggest, you know, had an issue with the service as a whole. I think they fell short in that regard. Yeah, with that kind of talent, uh, they really could have portrayed the truth. You know, you can still... I mean, they still could have done a production, and they could have done an awesome job with correctly. Um, it could have included Adam. <laughs> I mean, they could have. They could have had a bigger impact. I mean, some people need that visual. I don't know. Some people aren't. They don't like reading. Um, and I don't have a problem with doing a production <laughs> necessarily, because he did come out and he did speak. Yeah. You know, and I think that would have been appropriate, but. That's where you get into the theology problems and just the way that even the sermons presented where you're like, where's the Bible? Like, okay, you tell these people that they're sinners and stuff, but where are they going to go home to and figure that out for themselves? Where are they going to see that? I mean, the actors could have at least quoted scripture, like the Jesus, well, he was actually like a knight in the production. Could have said, I lay my life down for my sheep, for my bride. And it could have at least said that, you know? Yeah. So do you have any final thoughts, though, on just Mike Todd, the Easter stuff, before we roll into these last two news stories that we have? Yeah, we can go on. We've been talking for an hour on it. (laughs) All right. So we do still have two news stories that we want to discuss here. And, you know, getting into this first one, sadly, we have yet another mass shooting. And do you want to read this headline, honey? A gunman live-streamed mass shooting at Louisville Bank that left five dead and eight injured, police say. Then just read through these first couple paragraphs. Okay, a 25-year-old bank employee opened fire at his workplace in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, Monday morning and live-streamed the attack that left five dead and eight others injured, authorities said. The gunman was identified as Connor Sturgeon, an employee at Old National Bank, according to interim Louisville Metro Police Chief Jacqueline Gwynn. He was killed by police after a shootout with authorities. 
Four of the victims who died Monday morning were identified as Joshua Barrick, 40, Juliana Farmer, 45, Tommy Elliott, 63, and James Tut, 64. Um, later that evening, police said a fifth victim, 57-year-old uh, Dina Eckert, also died. Authorities initially said nine others were injured in the attack, including a 26-year-old uh, police officer who graduated from the police academy just 10 days ago and was shot in the head. Five of those injured had gunshot wounds, a hospital spokesperson said. Later Monday night, police said Eckert, one of the injured victims, had passed away, bringing the death, death toll to five. Yeah, uh, terrible tragedy, you know, and happening just two and a half weeks after the shooting in Nashville. And, you know, of course, everybody wants to gravitate towards the low-hanging fruit. You know, in the same CNN article that Nikki was just reading from, you know, they referenced the AR-15 a whole bunch of times, over and over again, the AR-15. And they avoid almost completely what we would see as sort of the connection that this kid has with the Nashville shooter. Mental health problems and no association with God. And I can't find this article I was reading previously, but it kind of describes Connor's college years and then as he kind of goes into his professional career. And it said, according to his LinkedIn profile, which was taken down after the shooting, Sturgeon was a summer intern at the bank starting in 2018. He graduated from the University of Alabama, where he got both bachelor's and master's degrees by the end of 2020. The University of Alabama said Monday that Sturgeon attended UA from the fall of 2016 to December 2020. He graduated with a bachelor's um, in commerce and business and a double major in finance and economics. Uh, the university said he was in an accelerated master's program, so he also earned a master's in finance. And then he started working full-time for Old National Bank in June of 2021 and went on. He was most recently a syndications associate and a portfolio banker, it says about him. So, you know, a lot of times we'll hear in the media in kind of our political class, they'll talk about how, you know, a person that commits these kind of atrocities, you know, they were oppressed or they were abused, whatever, maybe poverty, some other external factor kind of led them to commit the crimes that they did. You know, we definitely heard some of that with the trans shooter in Nashville, you know, the difficulty or whatever she had at this previous school. Um, even years ago, you know, you can go back years to kind of our Islamic extremist days and our government would talk about how poverty and lack of jobs led to Islamic extremism. Hmm. Well, none of that we see here with Connor Sturgeon. He seemed like a successful young man with plenty of opportunity you know, so what went wrong with Connor? It's like they try to f fix issues with people um, every way except coming to God. Like, it's a heart issue. You have evil in your heart. It's like, like we can play God and we can manipulate and change the outcome, you know, yeah. Um, and put it on other people. We need to be more tolerant or we need to be that, you know, the whole, whole society has got to change so we can prevent these types of people from forming in society. Yeah. I mean, that's their solution is let people be as crazy, wicked and evil as they want, but just take away all the tools that they can use to hurt other people. 
Yeah. Instead of just that too. Yeah. fixing the people, right? So, but it does say about Connor, if you want to read this piece here, honey. Um, a former schoolmate of Connor Sturgeon revealed that he had experienced multiple concussions while playing football and had to wear a helmet during his high school basketball games as a result. Yep. And then it also goes on here, another article I read, it says a lone gunman. So this Connor who attacked the old Nashville or National Bank, killing five and injuring eight others, left a note behind and told at least one person he was suicidal, hmm. officials said. So, you know, whether his mental health issues were as a result of all these concussions that he got when he was younger, um, or it was just something else that led him here. He had mental health problems and he was suicidal. And I guess, I mean, you could say anyone that's suicidal has mental health problems. They kind of go hand in hand. I just, I don't know. Do people who are depressed and suicidal have hatred in their heart toward other people? No. And I that's don't... why he certainly had evil in his heart, you know, and this is where I've, all the articles I've read, I see nothing about an association or a faith in God um, because he did have evil in his heart. So you can just assume, regardless of what, even if he was in church or had a faith-based fam, there was no <laughs> spark of the divine in him. Yeah, we just can't say, oh, they have a mental issue and they're a victim. It's always like making these shooters out to be victims. So I don't, like, it's just so backwards. It's like, no, they're, they have an evil heart. Yeah. And they need God. And this kid, yeah. just like the trans shooter, they did, right? You don't go and commit this level of violence on people, especially innocent people, unless you're a child of like Satan. Depression and anger are different. Like, depression doesn't um, drive people to stuff like this. Like, depression makes you not want to be around anybody. It makes you feel sorry for yourself and want to take your own life, not other people's lives. Yeah, no, evil makes you want to take other people's life. So, you know, we, I think, have both. We have a mental health crisis in this nation that's largely going unaddressed. But maybe even more importantly than that, we have a loss of faith crisis in this nation. And I think both of those are breeding grounds for violence. You know, but do you see anyone in our leadership sort of discussing how to fight a mental health crisis? No, right? We see leaders largely leaning into it or exploiting the mental health crisis for their own gain. Yep. I mean, really, the entire LGBTQ movement and this sort of mobilization is taking advantage of mentally ill people to advance, as we would say, a satanic political agenda. Mm -hmm. You know, but we don't see anyone, you know, crossing, you know, political lines or, you know, whatever, doing whatever they can to advocate for a return to faith. And you know, advocating for the failure of whatever this secular humanist society that we've devolved into. Mm -hmm. Nope, just focus on the guns. That's all you're going to hear. Focus on the gun. And it's sad that lives are going to be lost. You could say they'll be sacrificed to advance whatever their sort of political goals are for taking away our freedoms when you're just trying to fight symptoms. You're not actually going after the problem, you know, Mm -hmm. The real sickness, which is mental health. And then that's, I guess you could largely say maybe a symptom of a loss of faith. But uh, this last article here talked about how it took the assailant, so this Connor kid, 
one minute to complete the bloodbath before he stopped and waited for police to arrive. So he live streamed this on Instagram, hmm. walked into the hospital, shot people within one minute, and then just sat down and waited for the cops to come. So again, like we were saying, this was a man with evil in his heart. That's so weird. He just sat there and watched everybody die. Yeah, like and like he watched people suffering. This isn't that's terribly really... uncommon. You know, I think they even maybe I'm making this term up, but I swear I've heard it before. It's basically like a cop assisted suicide. You know, like you wanna die, but you don't maybe even have the courage to kill yourself. So you're gonna go and just do something that causes someone to kill you, basically, which I would say is even more wicked because you know, you've already killed people, but now you're making somebody else kill you. And even for a police officer, that's going to weigh heavy on their heart and their mind for probably the rest of their life, their souls that they had to kill some young kid. So Connor wanted to hurt people. He wanted to kill people, right. especially people he knew and worked with. If he with. wanted to be shot by the police, he could have, he could have like shot somebody in the leg or something, you know, he could have made it so they didn't die, but you know, they still would have shot him if he pointed his gun at the cops and refused to. No, he had evil in his heart. And again, not just killing people, but also wanting to wound the conscience of these officers in the process. I mean, it's really depraved. So like we sort of mentioned two and a half weeks ago, right, with the Nashville shooter, our leaders have no solution because they refuse to acknowledge the problems. Uh, and then for us Christians, we must not make the same mistake. You know, I can't tell you how many what I would consider sort of pseudo-Christians I saw on Twitter, kind of right in the aftermath of the trans shooter and this as well, you know, just get rid of the guns, you know, just screaming over and over again. Like, this is their great plan. Ignore the problem, go get the gun. That's the plan. You know, I think we've got to be people that aren't afraid to address the real problems. You know, a loss of faith in God coupled with mental health problems, it leads us to become a nation of violence, which we are. It's not even surprising. It's like the most non-surprising thing ever. Oh, we have people who have no faith or nihilistic atheists, and they have all these mental health problems, drugs, all this sort of stuff. Oh, and we're violent? Shocker. Like, who could have seen that coming? I know. Just the whole gun argument. It's like removing guns isn't going to isn't going to change anything. Um, it's people's hearts. Um, but keeping guns in the hands of normal citizens can stop more death because if someone wants to harm others, they're going to find another way. And I don't know how many times that people got to explain this, but it's just amazing. You have to keep repeating this. It just, it's annoying. <laughs> no, it's certainly sad. I mean, pray for the families. Like we said, with the trans, uh, Nashville shooter, even pray for the family of the shooter. Um, you know, they're, I'm sure, struggling as much as anybody. You know, I couldn't imagine having my son go and do something this wicked. Uh, so pray for them that they would give their hearts to Christ as well. But we do have one last story to end on here. Uh, a very strange story mm -hmm. that maybe, I guess, I don't know if this lightens the mood or makes it darker. It's hard to know. It but makes you feel just icky. <laughs> you want to read this headline, honey, and then these first couple paragraphs? I don't want to. 
Because <laughs> I feel gross reading it. <laughs> uh, it says, Dalai Lama apologizes after video asking child to suck his tongue sparks outcry. The Dalai Lama has apologized after a video emerged showing the spiritual leader kissing a child on the lips and then asking him to suck my tongue at an event in northern India. In a statement Monday, the office for the Dalai Lama said he wishes to apologize to the boy and his family, as well as his many friends across the world, for the hurt his words may have caused, adding he uh, regrets the incident. His holiness often uh, teases people he meets in an innocent and playful way, even in public and before cameras, the statement said. His apology comes after a video of the exchange, which took place during an event in the hillside city of Dharamshala. (laughs) Um, uh, The video went viral on social media with India. I'm sorry, Northern India. Um, So it went viral on social media with many users criticizing the Dalai Lama's actions. On the video, the young boy can be seen approaching the Nobel Peace Prize winner before asking, can I hug you? The 87-year-old spiritual leader then invites the boy on stage and points to his cheek and says, first here, prompting the boy to give him a hug and a kiss. The Dalai Lama then points to his lips and says, then I think finally here also. He then pulls the boy's chin and kisses him on the mouth. And suck my tongue, he says, after a few seconds, poking his tongue out. And I think it's weird how, like, he's apologizing for his words, but everybody's upset about his actions. Yeah, he did come out on Twitter that I saw, and, you know, the office of the Dalai Lama gave some really sort of lame, you know, response to, sorry that this was, you know, he didn't mean to, he's playful, whatever, you know, but... So he's not apologizing that he kissed the boy on the mouth. He's thinking about what he said after that was the problem. It's like, no, that well, was wrong. Well, and we know that this is the old uh you're not sorry for what you did or for what you did, you're sorry that you got caught kind yes. of a thing, right? And Yeah. You know, as disgusting as Weird. this story is, it does serve as a simple reminder and that's kind of why we wanted to highlight it here. Um that the Dalai Lama, and I figured we would go in the words of former Arizona uh, Cardinals head football coach. Nikki has no idea who Dennis Green is. But they are who we thought they were. So the Dalai Lama is who we thought he was. The Dalai Lama is a sinner in need of a savior. The Dalai Lama is a man, a fallen and sinful man like all the rest. Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the only sinless and perfect one. Um, though I will say, in respects to the Dalai Lama, uh, he may be a bit worse of a sinner than just the average Joe, because I think anybody that would allow themselves to be referred to as his holiness is probably a person that's kind of completely given over to the sin of pride. And I would say the same goes for the Pope. You can lump him in with the Dalai Lama as well. And this is like that C.S. Lewis quote that I'm going to butcher, but Um, I think it fits pretty well in regards to the Dalai Lama. He says, or you could say the Pope as well, that you can even have pride in your humility. And I think we see that whenever somebody allows themselves to be his holiness, you know, Christ, like all these different lavish titles that we put on these supposed spiritual leaders who are 
just fallen men, sinners, and in the Dalai Lama's case, apparently perverts like all the rest. Um, so, and again, we're just speculating, right? This is just one little incident, one running with the kid. So it's a speculation. But like so many other leaders around the world, would it shock you that the Dalai Lama's really a pervert? Uh, wouldn't shock me, but I would say you don't ask a young boy to suck your tongue in public if you're not a pervert. Uh, like if you, what you do in public versus ugh, what well, you do not in public. It's like if you're that bold in public, you're worse. And as you would expect, um, in especially California, um, they did try to go, I guess I read an article explaining away the uh, Dalai Lama's actions. So do you want to read these couple of paragraphs trying to explain away what the Dalai Lama did? According to a 2014 BBC article, sticking out your tongue can be considered as rude, but in Tibet, it's a way of greeting. It has been a tradition followed by the Tibetan people since the 9th century, when the region was ruled by Lang Drama, who is known for a black tongue, said the outlet. After the death of the king, the locals starting, started showing their tongues when asked to confirm that they are not like him or his reincarnation. The Institute of East Asian Studies, UC Berkeley, also mentions this in its 2014 piece. The institute said on its website that sticking out one's tongue is a sign of respect or agreement and was often used as a greeting in traditional Tibetan culture. So does it surprise you that California academics are excusing away pedophilia? Oh my gosh. Doesn't surprise me, but I'm not sure how you go from sticking out your tongue as a greeting to suck my tongue is somehow acceptable. That's a whole other level of greeting. Uh, yeah. But again, sure. it's just a cover in my opinion, right? And I, it reminded me of a story that we heard years and years ago. Again, speaking of the Middle East, if you guys remember, there was those two army officers and they got in trouble. I think one of them was discharged. The other one was facing discharge. I can't remember. But they beat up that Afghan police official because they uh, had caught him basically sexually assaulting a young boy a few nights in a row or whatever. You know, so they found out what was happening. No one would do anything. So they basically went in there and beat the snot out of this Afghan police official. And the media and sort of the political class kind of said the same stuff with this guy. And I pulled this from an article. Um, oh, it said Martlin, I think was one of the guys and former Captain Daniel Quinn were disciplined by the army after they beat a powerful local police official who they concluded had been raping a small boy in northern Afghanistan in 2011. They say they had been encouraged by higher-ups that there was nothing to do about such horrific acts, that these were Afghan problems for the Afghan authorities to work out. It's just their culture, don't you know, for grown men to rape little boys. Um, just culture or not... <laughs> Sexual perversion should not be tolerated or excused away, as we see Berkeley doing, as we saw the military and media class explaining away in Afghanistan. Um, shouldn't be explained away if you're from Afghanistan yeah. or even if you're His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. If you're a pervert, you're a pervert. It's like the argument people make just about homosexuality. Like, well, 
they're not hurting anyone. Why do you care? It's their life. So it's like teaching you to just look the other way because it doesn't affect you. So if a child is being abused, look the other way. It's not hurting you. You know, how does that affect you? It doesn't. Just ignore it. Or if you know, it's like teaching people to mind their own business, like, which isn't good. Like, you were supposed to defend the helpless. Like, yeah. Like, well, it's just. I love Captain Quinn. I don't know what he's up to now, but boy, just the thought of him walking in there, <laughs> pounding and pummeling this Afghan police official brings a smile to my face. Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe that's ungodly of me. I don't think it is. But yeah, you know, they can try to explain it away. But just like, leave what the dollar would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Apply that everywhere. It's just disturbing to ignore problems because it's just culture. Like everyone has a moral conscience and culture doesn't come before morality. Like they look at it like we're different. We're a different species because we're a different culture and held a different standards of right and wrong. That's kind of like what they're saying here. Right, so, but we know that these Berkeley academics, they don't have, it's not a culture problem for them. They're the same ones that are going to be telling you and probably have already told you that minor attracted persons is a normal thing to be. I mean, they're the ones that are going to try to push to make pedophilia a normal act. Hmm. Um, so no, they're down with this. Uh, I would believe, you know, because again, you don't justify things like this away. So the Dalai Lama, though, he is on Twitter, at least his office. So reach out to him. I sent him a message. <laughs> Not sure he saw it. I told him to repent, believe in Christ, that he's the only, you know, son of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So you never know. You know, you never know who, no one's outside of God's reach should he desire to save them. So maybe send the Dalai Lama a message. He certainly appears to need it. So do you have any final thoughts here on anything we talked about? Mike Todd, the mass shooting, his holiness. Um, the gospel needs to be preached. Um, it's not being preached very well in churches. It's just, there's just no knowledge of sin. There's this tolerance of it. I don't know. All these stories today are just like, uh, it's just unsettling. Like we need the gospel preached. We need, I don't know. Yeah. I'll just like say that's the answer. Like that's what it comes down to all like the church is being so lukewarm and pastors afraid to offend with the truth that are ashamed of the word of God. Like, what are you going to do when all these churches are worried about numbers over salvation? Yeah, you know, I'll just say, like, I don't have a problem with the entertainment. I don't have a problem with the emotion. I mean, I think, you know, if you have a heart of flesh, you know, you should be moved to emotion when you hear of what Christ did for us and what God did for us, you know. And so I don't have a problem with the entertainment. I don't have a problem with the emotion and all that. But when it's in place of God's word and the preaching and, you know, the proper understanding and diagnosing and all of that sort of stuff, then it is a problem. And I think that's largely what we saw at Transformation. So it's not that they put out a play for Easter, have no problem with that. But when it's, I think, poor theology followed up with lack of actual um, preaching God's word, 
you know, it just kind of, I think, makes a, makes for a bad mix. And, yeah, I think we need to avoid that, you know, which is sad because, you know, I think if me and Nikki probably 15 years ago, we probably would have went to a transformation church. We would have loved the light show. We would have loved, you know, all that it has to offer. Um, but I think, you know, hopefully I would assume that's part of the sanctification process where you grow out of that and you just, yeah. I want to hear from God. I want to, mm-hmm. you know, know what he says for my life and these sorts of things. And I don't need the emotion and the entertainment anymore. And, you know, and again, this isn't even about MacArthur because you may not like the way he preaches and it's, it's too dry. It's too whatever. Fine. I mean, I have no problem with that, but I just think when you're trading in, you know, sound doctrine and biblical teaching for entertainment and emotion, I think that's a bad trade-off. Yeah, you don't go to church to feed the flesh. You go to feed your spirit. So if the Word of God is dry to you, um, because you're trying to feed your flesh, and it's not going to be satisfying to your flesh. So... Well, but even that still, right? Like, you know, certain pastors and preachers have their own tone, you know, so... You may not like an old John MacArthur. You may like whoever your pastor is, who's maybe more, you know, whatever happened. I'm just saying, like, you know, there's a a lot of ways to sort of uh, present that message and that gospel message. And it doesn't have to look specifically like one, you know, kind of person. But Right. We just have so many people that we can listen to. Like, if we didn't have the internet and we only had our local church— you know, we go where we can get the word of God. Um, we're just, we're too spoiled that we can say, oh, that's not my style. I don't like his voice. I don't like the way. It's like, is the truth being preached? Like, are you, is the word of God being handled correctly, presented uh, properly? Um, yeah, we have to quit being like so picky. We have to really look test the words and not be like, oh, this isn't appealing. I'm falling asleep or like, really, there's not that many pastors out there that really preach that bad. Like I've, I've listened to people online and yeah, there may be a little monotone or, but you can, you can look past that and hear the word and, and really be blessed. You can look past it. Well, I hope you guys can look past it because our sermon recommendation comes from a gentleman who is, in fact, quite bland by Transformation Church's standards, and that is Alistair Begg and his Easter sermon, if you will, uh, Christ is Risen. So if you're familiar with Alistair Begg, maybe you like it, maybe you don't, but not the most, uh, you know, over-the-top, bombastic preacher on the planet but he does have an accent. So maybe you're into accents. I don't know. Uh, but I think the message was good. I didn't get a chance to listen to all of it, but what I did hear, I liked, uh, I seem to like Alistair Begg just fine from what I've heard of the man. So, uh, I wanted to pick an Easter sermon because that was largely what I wanted to talk about this week before the transformation and all that stuff was don't lose Easter. Don't lose sight of Easter. You know, it's like it's one day of the year and this huge big production, but then life happens and we move on from Easter. But for Christians, we should never move on from Easter. It should be a daily reminder, a weekly reminder of what Christ did for us. And I don't 
want you guys to lose focus on Easter. So maybe at least for another week, stretch it out, give Alistair Begg or anybody, you know, that you're interested in, um, give that sermon another listen, be reminded of what Christ did for us. Um, he did pay it all. It's all about him. And, uh, you know, those of us that are found in Christ, we are servants of him and glad to be so. So just, yeah, maybe spend a little more time this week remembering what he did for us. I don't think uh, that's time wasted. I think it's time well spent. So that is all that we have. We'll be back on Monday with our daily devotionals. Hopefully, Lord willing, there'll be no more mass shootings for us to talk about. Hopefully this nation will heal from these sorts of wounds and maybe we'll even have time to discuss knowing sin. Because um, I think uh, we're seeing sin on full display here in this nation. So that's what we'll have hopefully next week. But come join us on Monday for the devotionals. And uh, we hope you guys have a blessed week. <laughs>